Alrighty. So this is not a thoroughly prepared message. <clears throat> it's actually something that God has been kind of mulling over in my mind, and it's, it's really a paradox for me. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to serve as a, a counselor at the landing camp, and this was an outreach for children in the foster care system. And a, a prayer request had gone out. We had the workers, we had the facility, we had all the logistics planned, but um, there was a need to find these children that would benefit from a, a camp where they would know that they were um, truly treasured, that they had a hope ahead, that they could find peace in their circumstances. And the prayer request is that these children would be found. And <clears throat> I wrestled with that because in order to be found, we sometimes first have to admit that we're lost. And I just, in my own spirit, I just mulled that over and I mulled that over. And it really, it left me a little conflicted because there's a difference between people being lost and things being lost. And in our busy, not, our, our busy lives and sometimes in, in just the hecticness, we focus on the things and, and not the people. So focusing on the things, does anybody watch the, the Curse of Oak Island History Channel? All right. <laughs> it's, I think the curse is that we've all wasted <laughs> days, probably weeks of our life, finding nothing. But they're, they're looking for, like, the Templar treasure, William Shakespeare's, you know, manuscripts, but, you know, they're not finding anything. And <laughs> one of the scriptures, actually one of the chapters of scripture that I really um, found myself turning to after this landing camp, after being there and being a part of um, giving these children a, a hope and showing them that they have a future in Christ uh, was, was Luke 15. It's, it's a passage of Scripture and a chapter of Scripture. Probably a lot of us, when we just hear it, we know um, what, it, what it talks about. But Luke, he talks about three parables. And he, they all describe, you know, a lost item. <clears throat> and during these uh, stories, parables are basically just stories, Jesus is specifically directing them towards the, the Pharisees and the scribes at the time. And, and Luke, I love Luke, Pastor Luke especially, but this Luke in the Bible is, uh, is really cool too. He's kind of like, um, uh, I don't know, uh, a detective like Sherlock Holmes and probably Dr. Watson too, put into one person. You know, he was a highly educated man. He was a, a physician. Uh, he was apostle, you know, and in my opinion, Luke's gospel is probably one of the most detailed accounts um, in, in the gospels. Uh, one of the reasons I like it so much is because it's chronological. <laughs> I'm a type one. I love order. Um, so I really enjoy reading the gospel. And if you remember my last sermon, I spoke to you about the Beatitudes. And for those of you that are, are not regular readers of the Bible, um, I encourage you to start reading the Bible because the Bible is God's living word. It is oxygen. If we are not pouring that into ourselves, our muscles will atrophy. <laughs> Amen? All right. So when we looked at Matthew's gospel, we saw that it was written to the Jews and it showcased how Jesus was the Messiah. When we look at Mark's gospel, we see it was written to the Romans and it emphasized Jesus as the suffering servant. And John's was written to the early Christians and it illuminated the deity of Christ. But what Luke is doing in his gospel is he's detailing the humanity of Jesus, but also how Jesus was a friend to the sinners. And this made the Pharisees irate. <laughs> the Pharisees, they were kind of like um, the blue-collar Jews of the day. Um, they would enforce the, the 613 rabbinical laws. Um, truth be told, if I were to go back in time, 
I would probably be a Pharisee. <laughs> and um, the Pharisees, you know, they were often at odds with the teachings of Jesus. But, you know, it is important to note the Pharisees, they, they had a lot of stuff right. Um, they believed in an afterlife experience. They believed that God was going to punish the wicked and reward the righteousness in the world to come. And they also believed in a Messiah, a, the promised Messiah. What's so tragic is that they were so blinded by their own self-righteousness that they couldn't see Jesus Christ, the Messiah, directly in front of them. So when we look at the text, uh, starting in uh, chapter 15, reading through verses like 1 and 3, um, we see the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're grumbling. Grumbling is just another word for complaining. Um, the fact that Jesus not only received sinners, but dined with them. You know, the Pharisees, they didn't have joy, especially in uh, a sinner coming to repentance. And Matthew 23 shows us what brought joy, this false sense of happiness to the Pharisees' life. You see, the Pharisees, they wanted attention. They wanted the place of honor at their banquets. They wanted to restrict the saved to a select few, the elite of Judaism. They felt superior to the Gentiles. The Pharisees, they wanted to focus on the complicated technicalities of all these rules. But Jesus, he taught simply. He told in stories. And the Pharisees, they were threatened that this was going to undermine their teachings. And the Pharisees, they looked at sin as an external thing. But Jesus looked at it as a matter of the heart. He saw the why behind the what that we did. So Jesus, he knew the Pharisees were grumbling, and the three parables we're going to look at today, the three stories, are going to be his response to them. The first one is the lost sheep. We'll go through this one just really quick. Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave this 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. But I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous person who do not need to repent. So when you think about it, the parable of this lost sheep, it presents us with some troubling questions. We ask ourselves, would it really be wise or even profitable for a man to leave 99 sheep to go after one in an open field to search for one lost lamb? No, <laughs> but we have Jesus. He does that for each one of us, amen? The second one, we look at the, the lost coin. Starts off, or suppose, which means basically, if you didn't get the first one, check this one. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coin and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. <clears throat> so we see great effort being expended in reaching the lost. And when a sinner repents, the angels rejoice in seeing God's purposes fulfilled. But when we look at these first two parables, there's some similarities in these two, but some stark differences to the third one we're going to look at in a second. The first two parables, you know, they're basically a pair. They're emphasizing the same truths. We see sinfulness is not stress, but lostness. It's a lost item. We see the owner taking the initiative to seek diligently and person, persistently towards finding the lost items. We see the owner rejoicing and expecting his neighbors to do so with him. It's not men who are lost, but things. 
but it's also men and women in these stories that we see seeking the lost. And the rejoicing of the one who has found the lost item is likened to the rejoicing of heaven, to the salvation and the repentance of one sinner. And I really think that last observation is the most crucial one for us to understand what the Pharisees are getting at. They were lovers of money, materialists, and they would easily identify with the mental torment of losing one out of 100, or especially one out of 10, kind of like a Smeagol and his precious turning into Gollum. You get so wrapped around something so precious to you, materialists. You see, a materialist can't stand to lose anything, but they would rejoice in finding what was lost. The Pharisees, they were like Jesus in that they did have compassion and compared for what that was lost. But the critical difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is that they cared about possessions while Jesus cared about people. So the Pharisees, they were hypocrites and they had misplaced compassion. So why were they unwilling to seek and save sinners? And why were they unable to rejoice at sinners' repentance? I think the third parable really tees up for us what he's getting at, the heart of it. They didn't get the first two, so here I'm going to drop some knowledge on you. Get this. When we look at the third one, excuse me, it's the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. And to a great degree, I think our understanding of this text, it's filtered through our own experiences. Parents who are struggling with a wayward child, they're always going to identify with the father of the prodigal, looking for the guidance from the text on what to do. Those who have fallen into sin, they're going to focus on the wayward son and on the longing and the forgiving heart of the father. However, few of us are going to choose to identify with the older brother. And yet, in the context of chapter 15, I really believe he's the central figure in this text. His sin is most in view, and his reaction to his brother's repentance and return is our Lord's explanation for the grumbling of our Pharisees and the scribes. In my own life, <clears throat> I've been just about every character in this story. <clears throat> I've been the prodigal son. <laughs> I love that part when we were worshiping. You know, if we can praise in the storm, our victory is going to be on the horizon. And God has pulled me out of some muddy mire, and he has set me upon a rock. And my CR brothers and sisters and, and those that are close to me, they know a lot of my story. And uh, I may look like I have it all together, <laughs> but I promise you I don't. Um, I have made many, many mistakes in my life. Um, I have regret. I have shame. I have guilt. Um, and those things oftentimes play over in my head. But I'm in a place in ministry now where I'm called to encourage, uplift, and help people that also are in that muddy mire and help them put their feet upon the rock and help them find a new song to put in their mouth. Uh, but if I'm not careful <laughs> with the stressors of ministry, with all the other things in this fallen world that Um, try to get my eyes off of um, what Christ has called each one of us to do, Uh, I can find myself identifying with this older brother as we're going to read in this story. And it's really this attitude of self-righteousness that we're going to identify with the Pharisees and the older brother. So starting in verse 11, we read, there was a man who had how many sons? Two sons. This is really a story about two sons, not a prodigal son. A man had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of that. After that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. So in ancient times, someone could divide their wealth. So there's an older son, there's a younger son. 
The younger son would get a third of the inheritance, the older son would get two-thirds, and then the younger son, if there were any sisters, there would be a dowry set aside. So basically at this point in the story, the younger son has got a third of the inheritance and he's gone off, squandered it in wild living. We'll get to what wild living means in a little bit. After he had spent everything, there was a famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the field to feed his pigs. Now to an Israelite, they, they couldn't eat pigs. So can you imagine how defiling it was to work and feed pigs in their slop? This was the lowest of lows. This is his rock bottom. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick. He wouldn't even let him finish his rehearsed apology. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. I want to tell you, this is not the robe that this young man left with. This robe would have been reserved for uh, wealthy people, uh, royal dignity, people visiting the house. It would have been their finest piece of clothing. He says, get the robe, bring it. He says, put a ring on his finger. This ring would have represented a covenant that his son, not a slave. He says, put sandals on his feet. Once again, the difference between a freed person and someone who wasn't was sandals. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Now, I want to remind you one thing. This is a story, but in this story, the wealth has already been divided. The older son has gotten two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son got a third. He squandered his. The father says, kill the fattened calf. Who does the calf belong to? Ooh, all right, here we go. But he says, let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, <laughs> that's a powerful word. Meanwhile, where was the older son? Where was he? Working. He was out in the field doing what a good person does. He working. <clears throat> when he came near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what is going on? Your idiot brother has come back home, he replied. <laughs> and your father has killed your fattened calf. Why is the cow fat? Because the older son fed it. That's why. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed one of your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this idiot son of yours has squandered all your property with prostitutes. I love that, how they throw that in there. Prostitutes. He comes home, you kill my fattened calf for him. And he says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Literally, everything I have was yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Isn't that a beautiful story? All right, well, we're going to dissect it a little bit now. And as I said, I'm fully convinced of one thing. This prodigal son story, um, it's not recorded in Scripture primarily as an instruction to parents of wayward children. 
You see, in the first two parables, they reveal to us that the Pharisees, they care too much about lost possessions. But this parable exposes that they really weren't concerned about lost people either. So when we look at the younger brother, um, he had hoped to be received as a slave when he, come, when he came home, but his father received him as a son. He put that ring on his finger. He had hoped at best for bread to be a servant, but his father gave him a banquet. But I, what I like about this story, it's, it's true in this story as it is with, with Jesus, there's no attempt to minimize the seriousness or the foolishness of the sins of the younger brother. Remember, Jesus regularly received sinners and ate with them, but he never minimized their sin. And this is key. Satan may know your name, but he calls us by our sin. But God knows our sin, but he instead calls us by our name. Precious, treasured, redeemed, restored, loved. It's hard. God often, he allows the natural consequences of our poor choices to play out. The miracle is that he brings good out of our pain by using them to display both his goodness and his grace for us. Amen? So while the younger sons, they were great, so too was his repentance. And his repentance, it began by seeing his actions first sinful in the sight of God and then in the sight of men. That's why when he comes back to his father, he says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. But I ask you this, are we more apt to focus on the consequences of sin or are we gonna focus on the mercy of him? All right, the father the father gave his son exactly what he asked for. He allowed the son to go his own way even though he could have prevented it. But the heart of the father never forgot his wayward son. That's why when the younger son appeared, he could see him off in the distance. But we get to the older brother. As I said, the older brother, he's gonna represent the Pharisees. They grumbled at Jesus' reception of sinners. The older brother, he's out in the fields working when the younger brother returns. He doesn't know of his return until he hears the celebration going on. The mention of killing of the fat calf, it was the final straw for the older brother. <laughs> it's like, fine, kill the skinny cow, but don't kill the fatted calf. <laughs> so he becomes so angry and raged, and he refuses to even go in and celebrate with the rest of them, even though the celebration was called for by the father. And the father, he comes out to the older son to appeal to him to join in on the celebration, but the older son, he still refused. And the words of the son are key to understanding both his desires and his attitudes. What he says that the father shows both his anger and his protest. He probably thinks his father is an idiot just like the younger brother for receiving him back and throwing a celebration for it. He says to him, I have worked hard. Some translation says, I have slaved, but you have given me no banquet. See, the Pharisees, they were also hard at work with respect to keeping the law as they interpreted it, believing that that would re uh, reward them with God's favor and his blessing. The son says to the father, you have given your son a banquet when all he did was sin. However, it wasn't the younger brother's sins that resulted in the father's celebration, but it was in his repentance and his return. You see, the older brother failed to comprehend grace. I'd go as far to say is he resented grace at this point. He says to him, I have never neglected a command of yours. Well, he just refused to go in to celebrate in a party. So I don't know how true that statement is. So not only does this son think that his work should have merited his father's blessing, he's also arrogant to assume that he himself had never sinned. And that's really what the Pharisees were wrestling with. The Pharisees thought of themselves as perfectly keeping God's commandments. 
They recognized that they sinned, but they didn't see themselves as sinners. The root problem of the older brother, self-righteousness, hands down. He expects, he even demands God's approval and his blessings. And his self-righteousness was so strong that he resented the grace and the mercy of God, and he refused to rejoice in it when someone else found it. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were so angry at Jesus because of his ability to do that. So let's look at the differences between the two sons. We see the younger son left home, the older son stayed home. The younger son was wasteful, the older son was productive. The younger lost his inheritance, the older did not. The younger son realized his sin, the older son felt righteous. The younger son repented, the older son resented. Ooh, wow. All right, those are the differences. Let's look at the similarities because I think the similarities kind of rocked me a little bit more when I was doing the study in this. You see, both sons, they wanted a celebration, but they wanted it without their father. The younger son wanted a celebration off in a foreign land doing wild living. The younger son, or the older son, we read that he wanted a banquet with his friends. We see both sons were slaves. The younger son was enslaved by his fleshly desires, his sins, and the older brother, he says, he felt like a slave to his own father working in the fields. We see both sons were materialists. Ultimately, both sons loved money. They only differed in what they wanted to do with it and when. The younger son wanted to squander it. The older son wanted to save it. Both sons were also sinners. And while the outward manifestations may be very different, inwardly, they both had the same roots. And I think as a society, as, as a culture, we tend to classify sin and sinners by external factors. Um, but Jesus, he looks at our heart. He looks at the why behind the what that we do. You know, we believe that stealing, murder, and violence, those are all horrible things. They're wrong, uh, especially when they're perpetrated on us. But Jesus goes on to show that in the Gospels that prayer, giving, preaching, or even showing charity can be sinful when the motive of the heart is unpure. So initially, when we look at the hardworking brother, we would, you know, commend him. There's no outward rebellion at least not until the celebration. Mm. You see, his inward attitudes and his motivations are evil because they were rooted in self-righteousness. They were concealed behind his outward conformity to his father's will and his hard work. So let me try to wrap this all up for you guys. These, these three parables that we've looked at, they've really revealed to the Pharisees and the scribes that they had much compassion for their own lost possessions, but they cared very little for lost people. This is why they couldn't rejoice at the repentance of lost sinners. They thought it was good works that merited God's favor rather than his grace. The older brother was angry with his father because he felt he didn't get what he deserved, a banquet, while the young brother got what he, did, he didn't deserve, a banquet. That's the whole purpose behind God's grace and his mercy. You know, get, God's grace is getting what we don't deserve. God's mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Man, and to have God's grace and his mercy, that enables us to extend his grace and mercy to other people, amen? Paul in Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not one of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. See, the problem of the Pharisees is that they were too good for their own good. They viewed others as sinners, but not themselves. 
They believed that by keeping the law, they could earn God's favor. But they not only rejected God's grace, they despised it. And this is what the older brother was doing with the celebration. Each of us, we're all sinners. We're all unworthy of God's favor. But Christ's death on the cross of Calvary, it's a gracious gift to each one of us. All we have to do is repent, turn from our wicked ways, and receive God's gift of eternal salvation in our own lives. You see, our joy in life, it's always gonna be rooted in God's grace for us. We never can lose sight of that. We can rejoice in our own salvation, and thus we can also share in the joy of others who come to repentance as well. The Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, he was motivated by joy, even in the midst of suffering, danger, and tribulation, because he found joy in the salvation and the growth of others, the sense of community. What's going on in this church right now is, is a powerful thing. I've been a part of this church for 25 years, but never have I felt us more connected um, with, with community, you know, with this idea of cave dwellers. You know, we go to caves and sometimes we isolate ourselves, but we have a network of caves that are all connected. We're stronger together, but the enemy wants us to be isolated because that's where we're most vulnerable. So this effort to really produce uh, connectivity in, in Gen U, uh, it's a powerful m movement. And I'm telling you right now, the enemy is not happy with what's going on here um, at <laughs> Gen U. Um, with Phil's teaching on, on the Holy Spirit, um, that was profound. With our, our freedom ministry and the, the lives that are being restored to, to wholeness and restoration, he is not happy. With Celebrate Recovery going on here, he is not happy. I'm telling you, right now, God... There are amazing things happening right now, and the enemy is not happy for one second that they're going on. So, yeah, amen. But I ask that of you as well. Because of all these things that are going on, we need to keep each other in prayer. We need to keep the uh, leaders of these groups in prayer. Please keep the staff of this church in prayer because we're all the tip of the spear, and we got to keep each other guarded. we got to keep each other prayed up uh, because the enemy is going to do anything he can to thwart what God is trying to do in and through Gen U. Amen? All right. <clears throat> it really saddens me that neither son... <laughs> found the father desirable to be with. And it saddens me that I think some of us are the same way with God. We mostly think of him as the giver rather than as the gift. We come to him in, in prayer, not for the fellowship and the communion we can have with him, but for the things we want him to provide for us and for our own enjoyment. But true worship is enjoying God for who he is, not just what he gives us. And as a church, if we really understand the grace of God, will welcome sinners who, like us, are completely unworthy of God's favor and will rejoice when they experience the same grace that we ourselves have found. And while there's no resolution to the final conflict that we see in this parable, we're left to ponder the older brother's response. Whether we are lost in our own selfishness or our own self-righteousness, the Father longs for all to come to him. Jesus teaches that there's no country too far there's no heart too hard, and there's no child that is too lost to be found in him. Jesus will always pursue us with love. He'll wrap us up with his grace, and he'll restore us with joy. You see, Christianity, sometimes we get it, we get it twisted. It's a relational movement in three directions, upward towards God, outward towards our neighbors, and inward to our souls. God sent his son to die for each one of us, 
and he wants to transform us and heal us of our brokenness. Remember, both sons were lost. They were just lost in very different ways. And sometimes we, we're fearful of our brokenness. We're fearful of showing others the, the scars and the things that we've been through in life. But I'm telling you, our brokenness, it allows the light of Christ to penetrate our hearts. Amen. And it turns that healing light back out to the world through those same cracks. Sometimes we want to erase, we want to hide, we want to cover those cracks. But those cracks allow that light of Christ to radiate back out to a lost and a hurting world. So listen to me. <laughs> My greatest fear in life is that someone is going to treat me the same way I treat myself. I'm a type one. I'm my own worst critic. I always have thoughts going over my head of, I should have done this. I should have, you know, done this better. Um, But we need to give grace, not only to ourselves, but to the people in our lives. We can't try to make people something that we ourselves can't be. Only God is good all the time. Psalms 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. You see, the Pharisees, they saw rules, but Jesus saw souls. And he is inviting each one of us to the banquet, regardless of our past mistakes or our present circumstances. And my prayer for each of you is that you would seek God and not perfection, because none of us are perfect. And the pursuit of being perfect is a race that you will never win or finish. (laughs) Amen. I pray that you would pursue the Lord and not be paralyzed by your past faults or your fear of the future. And I pray that we're able to see others the way that Christ sees them through the lens of the cross, not as being perfect, but as being perfectly loved. It was that love of Christ that held him up to that cross to bear our sins upon him. And I just... What God has done in my own life, what he has brought me out of, what he has blessed me with, that is just the tip of what God is wanting to do in so many people's lives here. And I love seeing God at work. You know, sometimes it's hard to uh, see where he is, especially when you're in the midst of a circumstance, when you're in the midst of a storm. But if you can praise him, your victory is on the horizon. In the midst of a storm, when you have people that can come alongside you, like we're doing with our, our groups, what we're doing with our, our Freedom Series and CR, you know, a strand of three is not easily broken. We need to connect ourselves. We need to stake ourselves to one another. We all have a story to tell. God has done amazing things in many of your lives, things that we've discounted, we've forgotten, things that we don't want to acknowledge. But our testimony is powerful, and God has a plan and a purpose for each one of you. Amen? All right. Why don't we-